Promotion Man, the true backstories of the most iconic bands in the world told by Fred Myers and interviewed by me, L.A. Lloyd. Get involved and interact on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find the links at promotion-man.com. That's promotion-man.com. Download the weekly Promotion Man podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. So, Shep, thank you. We were looking forward to this, um, and we're doing it in Zoom mostly because what we usually do with the podcast is out of the live studio when it's not live. But right now there's a shift. The afternoon drive shift is in there. But but this works just fine for us. But um, thanks. Thank you for agreeing to do this with us. No problem. So, so um, one of the things that made me so excited about having this interview with you is when we started the podcast a couple of years ago, it just started mostly as a podcast, which you can't play music. And then we started to do a radio show um, from the podcast. And every time we brought up Alice Cooper, whether it was Murray Nagel or it was Stu Cohen or whomever it was that we had brought up, when it came to Alice Cooper, as much as they talked about breaking 18 out of CKLW with Rosalie Trombley and all the stories that went with that, they always followed it by saying, um, Shep was the one that made it so easy or our job's easy because he was so accessible. Um, when I watched the Supermensch movie, it just makes me feel like your life has just had so many synchronicities, if you will. I mean, yeah, right place at the right time. Yeah, right place at the right <laughs> time. A lot of a lot of the time. Yeah, I'm very thankful all the time. For, uh, all of it, beginning yeah. with where I dropped out of the womb. <laughs> coming, out, coming out in America, you have a chance. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, watching Supermensch, you and I had the same kind of mom, which was kind of sad, you know, because there w it wasn't really uh, nurturing. Um, so it was really kind of fun to see you not only just kind of talk about it briefly, but the the warm, big heart that you have as a man is just very endearing. So I want to ask you a question, something that I, you know, heard, uh, obviously, when people were back in the 60s watching Ed Sullivan and, and the way that Colonel Tom Parker managed to, you know, get them to show Elvis from the way up. And I understand that Colonel Parker's was a, a big influence on you. So I was, you know, yeah, wanted to yeah. talk about that a little bit, if you could. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, when I when um, when I started with Alice, I, I, I had no training. I wasn't really a manager. I had no idea what managers even do or and I don't think there was any. There was so few managers It was really agents. I mean, Albert Gro Albert Grossman was in there. I had read about Brian Epstein. Um, and then I had read about Colonel Parker. Yeah. Um, and the, the defining moment in Elvis's career, and I remembered being a victim of this, was watching him on the Ed Sullivan show, and they wouldn't show his hips. <laughs> we, we all assumed it was because he was so sexual. Right. That's the way it was sold. Right. You know, when you look behind the curtain, it was Colonel Parker who said, I'll only put him on the show if you only show him from the hips up. Wow. Knowing that he would get that reaction 
get parents to say this is really disgusting and get every daughter to want to go see the show and scream and yell. Um, so that for me was sort of, that was my focal point. That was my validation. That was really what drove for so many years, so much of the stuff I did with Alice, yeah. um, which was, um, and, and the, the Colonel Parker came, came into my life a lot of times. Um, I live in Hawaii basically because of Colonel Parker. When I wanted to take a vacation, I had seen a picture of the house he stayed in in Honolulu when they did it. I was from Hawaii. <laughs> so I got a hold of the promoter and asked him if I could rent that house. Oh, wow. And my first trip to Hawaii, I stayed in that house. So have you met um, Have you met Colonel Parker several times before he passed? Him. Never, never met, him. met him. I met Elvis once. I never met the Colonel. Wow. Um, yeah, I never, I, I um, I'm sad I never did. I never really reached out. I never really tried. Um, but I, I, I think he passed away when I was still early in my journey. I'm not sure when he passed, but I think it was a, the middle seventies or somewhere. Um, so I, I didn't really have the confidence at that point to, you know, hi, like to meet you. So, <laughs> yeah. How old were, was Groucho Marx? I mean, he was probably well into his career, I guess, when you started working with him, right? I see his photo behind your head. Yeah, yeah. So, he was well at the end. Of, he was well at the end of his career. So, how did you guys work together or get together? Or I, I got together with him through Alice. Alice called me up one day, who came by the office and said, "You won't believe what I did last night. I got in bed with Groucho Marx and watched him sleep." <laughs> I said, you got to be kidding me. He said, no. I got in bed with him. I, he gave me Mickey Mouse ears that said Groucho. He wore big, and we watched Johnny Carson. And he had a kibitz for everybody who was on the show. And I said, you, man, if you could get me up there, um, I'd do anything to meet Groucho Marx. Wow. So a couple of days later, he said, come on up tonight. Groucho said, you can come up. So I went up and... Um, while I was there, a shift of nurses left. There was always a nurse around. He was fairly, um, he needed help. Right. Um, but no shift showed up after the first one left. And um, Alice found out for me it was because they didn't have the money. Really? Uh, yeah, they, they were, he had, this is before anyone knew really about Alzheimer's. Right. And as ridiculous as this sounds, he had a business manager who couldn't remember where he put the money. Oh my God. Which is insane, but it, it was real. Wow. Um, and he never, you know, in those days, guys didn't earn the way they earn today. Yeah. Um, so I really got involved to try all pro bono to try and, uh, you know, pay back this guy who, who gave me such great moments with my father laughing at these movies. Sure. That felt like everybody in America owed him. <laughs> and, um, I was able to, they, he had a woman named Erin in his life at that point, who was his secretary, his manager, probably his lover. Um, and she's the one who officially hired me to co-manage with her. But there wasn't much I could do. I did one concert at Carnegie Hall because Jerry Moss was a good friend and he said he'd give him a lot of money uh, for the album. Right. And then I got the TV show, but I helped to get the TV show back on the air. Wow. And what was really far out was that they were all actors. All the contestants were SAG members. Really? Wow. I didn't know that. 99.9% .9 of them were SAG members. <laughs> and um, 
So we had to renegotiate with mostly estates um, to get a, a reduction in their residual so we could afford to syndicate the show. Oh, I see. That's crazy. Yeah. And luckily it worked out. I did get to meet um, oh, the announcer. Uh, remember the announcer on You Bet Your Life? Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm trying yeah. to think of his name, though. His name's I not got, I to can't me. either, but he's a banker. He was a banker in Minneapolis, and I got to meet him there in the process, which was fantastic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, there's a lot of questions I've got for you as well. And um, one of the things that I found you to be so fascinating was <clears throat> learning about how coming back to Detroit, and we had Wayne Kramer on the show um, from MC5. And so, you know, learning how you guys went back to Detroit, um, got back into the energy of that city, and then going to that concert that John Lennon put on in Toronto. And that's where the chicken thing went down, right? That's where that was. That was our oh, that was our Ed Sullivan moment. <laughs> yeah, and what was wild is when Alice describes it. He goes, "You know, no fan brought a chicken to the show." Yeah. So he said, "So he said, so the only person that I could think of that would have done that would have been Shep." <laughs> and then my and then my feeling was, well, what did John Lennon think of that? Right? Did you ever talk with him? And do you ever have any response about any of that? No, never talked. You mean to Lennon? Yeah. No, I don't. I don't. I don't think it ever came up in conversation. And I was sort of, truthfully, at that point, I was trying to avoid everybody because I was. <laughs> I had so many. I was playing so many things against the middle to get Alice on between Jim Morrison, and John Lennon. Right. Pretty crazy. We were very. Really. Yeah. Uh, so I just tried to stay out of everybody's way. <laughs> so they couldn't stop me. <laughs> so I don't think I ever had a conversation with them about it. Well, and I'll tell you what, we had Danny Zalisco on as a guest at one time, and he told the he told the funniest story about you and Bill Graham and how he was just brand new to the concert business. <laughs> and he was going backstage and um there was a scenario where Alice's father was thrown out and you were mad at Bill Graham for throwing Alice's father out. And he said, and the fight went from one room to another room <laughs> to another room. Like a John Wayne movie. <laughs> yes. And you don't look like a violent guy. That When he told that story, I was really, really surprised. The only, that's, that's, I'm trying to think if I ever had another fight. I think that's the only fight of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and then the funny thing is, is you guys are, are close friends, you and Bill Graham. Yeah, we became, I mean... I would say more than close friends, we became, we had mutual respect for each Yes, other. yeah, right. Um, he operated in a very different way than me. Yes, a um, complete opposite. He, he he enjoyed winners and losers. Yeah, yeah. where you uh, seem to want to neutralize it, where- well, winners and winners. Yes, that yes. That sounds great. Yeah. So for him, a concert wasn't a success unless he could develop a protagonist. Mm whether it was someone in the audience, whether a security guy, whether it was someone backstage, um, he had to have someone that he could throw out or have thrown out or put control over. That was just part of his rhythm. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've, I know people like that as well. Um, I, wonder... yeah, I, look for, I look for people to bring in to say hello to Alice. Yes. Who might, you know, might make their night or their life. Yes, exactly. So, uh, uh, 
completely different way of looking at the event. You know, when you met uh, Roger Verge, um, and, and I guess he became a mentor to you as well, I mean, is that what really kind of led you into working more with chefs? Because I know your passion yeah. was more about cooking than it actually was music, right? Yeah, you know, I never... I kept trying... When I, when I started to get successful... Um, I, I and so many of the people in my world died at 26. Mm. Morris and Janice, had, you know, she was my next door neighbor. So I wow. knew, although I was enjoying every second of every minute of every day, I knew I was really headed for trouble. I was over abusing every category you could over abuse in. Um, I was worshiping every false god you could, you know, a, a white <laughs> Bentley. A, every all those things right uh, and was having a great time <laughs> i wouldn't trade it in but i also was aware that there was something bigger out there mm -hmm. um, than just having the keys to a car and that um so um i first thing i hit upon was a philosopher named joseph campbell and he talked about going into a quiet room every day for 20 minutes mm. and doing something that makes you happy. And I had real trouble finding that. Music didn't really get it for me. Film didn't get it for me. I couldn't really find anything to go into that room with and come out smiling. Um, and then I, I, I got lucky. I won the Cannes Film Festival. I got taken to a restaurant in the south of France. And the chef walked in and I just, something in me said, this is the guy who can teach me what to do in that room. Mm, okay. Wow. Um, That's interesting. And I, I, I was a ketchup and macaroni guy, Sara <laughs> Lee frozen cheesecakes. <laughs> I weighed like 260. Yeah. A pound of macaroni and ketchup at a joint and a TV and I'm the happiest guy in the world. <laughs> um, but through him, I got to, um, to find in myself what really I was passionate about, which I, which never, music and that never got me. But when I started cooking and being around um, the culinary arts um, and serving people, I really found what I enjoyed, what made me happy. You know, I totally understand that too, because there's so many processes, the preparation, the cooking, the, the cooking by touch and feel, you know, where you just kind of feel it. Um, and then the serving and then the people enjoying it. I totally understand what you're talking about. And, you know, it, I never completely, as as I, I was lucky enough to be close to the Buddhist world for a while. And they did one of their rituals is called the San Mandela. And it's um, 10, 12, 20 monks will get together. You know, if there's like a, uh, if there's a wedding. Um, the day, the morning of the wedding, they'll get together and um, scrape sand in different colors and make these beautiful paintings wow. in sand wow. that are go just gorgeous. And so, some of them could take days, weeks. And as soon as it's finished, they all walk into a body of water and dump it in the water wow. to learn about impermanence, to learn that nothing's permanent, to enjoy mm -hmm. the moment, to, you know, all. And one of the things I found about cooking, which was one of my sort of hangups on music and film, when it's over, it's over. 
the meal's done. Right. Mm-hmm. Next, you make an album and last forever. Mm-hmm. That's true. Make a movie and last forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really enjoy that practice of being able to fully commit for the moment, knowing that it's just for the moment. Um, so do you st- still do the 20 minute a day uh, ritual there? No, uh, no. no, I sort of found my thing. So um, I started to say, they'd asked me, and I said, I might have to go in there and masturbate for 20 minutes. And I'd come <laughs> yeah. out with a smile on my face. You, know? could, <laughs> could you said that because I thought about that too. <laughs> yeah. So Sharon Stone was the one that kind of introduced you to the Dalai Lama though. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what I loved about you describing her was sure she was beautiful on the outside, but she had a really beautiful spirit and soul inside. And, yeah, and, and obviously she did when she had that sort of uh, yearning for the Dalai Lama and, and his teachings. Um, yeah, she, she loves knowledge. Um, I just read that she's doing Amphar again, the Amphar event. And she, she's raised, I think, $50 million for Amphar wow. over the career. And you, you cook for the Dalai Lama, right? What, what do you, what to, do you yeah. prepare? How much pressure is that to go like, holy <laughs> shit, I'm cooking for the holy Dalai Lama, shit. man. <laughs> I called in a lot of reserves. <laughs> sure you I did. Whole, I had a whole crew in there with me of other chefs. Right. But it was, it was fantastic. It was, um, it was the opposite of what I thought it would be. I assumed he was going to be a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't really like vegetables. He wanted like uh, first meals. The big meal of the day is at five in the morning. And he likes like meatballs and spaghetti or wow. sauce. <laughs> I would have never thought that. I would never thought yeah. that. No, I, never, I was really amazed that I, you, the Tibetans are so gentle. It's not like they have a rider. They don't want to tell you what to do. So I couldn't get anybody to really tell me what to cook. Cook what you would like to cook. Cook what you would like to cook. Um, but he had stayed in Fred Siegel's house in Malibu. You know, the clothes company? Yeah. Fred Siegel. Wow. Wow. So I got a, I got a connection to Fred Siegel's chef. <laughs> and I asked him what he made him. And when he told me, it was like, holy shit. That's spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> yeah. But I did work really hard. I did a lot of research on um, one of the things that I always like to do and was when someone comes to why I make some chicken soup. Mm. I love to make that too. That's like, you know, it's like a warm hug. Yeah, it is. And if you can make a really good broth, a homemade broth, which my grandmother taught me, it's the necks, you could get feet, you know, but those are the things that that make the good broth. Right. So so I researched what is their chicken soup. Something that I thought would make them feel like somebody really thought about it, somebody really cared. You're in Hawaii, you're going to get something that you only got at home and he hasn't been home in 50 years because he's been in exile right so the only thing they really have in the uh in the tibetan culinary world is yak yak is a mountain goat um and they have yak meat yak butter yak cheese and from the yak cheese they make uh, from the butter i mean they make a yak tea oh wow. wow So I work really hard to get yak, which is. <laughs> what does yak hard. taste like? Well, I'm going to tell you in a minute. So. <laughs> okay. I never got to the taste, but I finally get yak. I found a friend of mine who lives in Thailand, does tours in Tibet, gets me the yak. I get yak butter. Smell it. I would say it's like 
if they didn't clean the locker room of the New York Giants for 20 years, <laughs> that would be what Yak is sort of like. Yeah. So like quadruple wrapped it, tried to get the smell out. No matter what you do, you couldn't get the smell out. But I'm so proud. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve him Yak tea on his first meal on the first day in Hawaii. He's going to think I am the greatest guy in the world. Um, oh, my God, am I cool. So um, first morning comes, I get the yak tea on the tray. And I'm almost, you know, like, I'm so impressed with myself <laughs> that I have yak tea there. And I go walking up and open the door, and he's shaving. His robe is halfway down, really cute little smile on his face. And uh, I remember brushing his teeth or shaving something in the mirror. And I go, hello, uh, your holiness, I have breakfast for you. He says, oh, good, good, good. Put down, put down. And then he goes, yak tea? <laughs> and, and now I'm like, I'm on cloud 97. Not only have I thought about it, done it, produced it, but he realized that in the first second, I'm like, and then I hear him say, oh, yak tea. And as I'm glorifying myself, he goes, oh, that's why I leave Tibet. <laughs> 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 so, Yakti uh, never came back and he completely leveled the playing field and <laughs> got me right out of my head really fast. That yeah. is a great story. All right, I want to shift gears with you a little bit. Um, Rosalie Trombley, they're trying uh, to put her in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. As well they should. As right. well they should. I mean, what stories do you have about her, you, you know, directly? I mean, um, I mean, Rosalie was really why the, there's Alice Cooper. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, um, I never got to know her too well. I got to know her son better than her. Mm -hmm. um, but she gave us our chance. We, you know, we worked really hard um, to get her attention. Um, we made the record in Canada with a with a Canadian producer, so we qualified for Canadian content. Okay. We made the record thinking of Rosalie Trumbley. We didn't know her. Really? We wow. We didn't even know the name, but we knew CKL. There were the two breakout stations in America, even though it was Canada, was CKLW and Wixie in Cleveland. Okay. When I went to Chuck K Chuck Dunaway, Chuck Dunaway, who was the program director, he said if I got CKLW, he would add it. Wow which showed me how important CKLW was. Well, listen to this, Shep. Warner Brothers hired me in 1978 to do the secondary market, which was the state of Michigan. And then I had Toledo. And then we had a rep that only called on Detroit with their entire focus on CKLW, ABX, RIF, DRQ, whatever, those stations. Right. But that's how important Warner Brothers took her, was I was the guy that would get up you know, and leave Monday and head Flint, Saginaw, Lansing, Grand Rapids, and then come back. And, but that was my territory. And then there was a rep that literally focused on Detroit. And I then, think in my days, it was Urso. Yeah, that's just it. It was David Urso. I'm trying to remember if Mike Stone followed him. He was the blonde yeah. guy with the British accent. And they ended I up remember David agreed to stay out of our way. <laughs> he was really honest with me. That's why I always loved David Erso. He said, listen, my salary is paid by Warner. 
they have priorities. Rosalie can only play so many records. I need her to play my records. There's no way in the world Alice is going to be a priority. Wow. But I'm not going to get in your way. If you can figure out how to get her to add the record, I won't stop her. So here's a here's a story I had heard, but no one's been able to qu uh, quantify it, and I hadn't talked to Urso about it. But when 18 first came out, the single wasn't really selling as quickly as Rosalie had wanted it to sell, and her main deal was store reports and requests. And I remember that Urso kind of called in the troops and had the WIA personnel, which was Warner Electric Atlantic, and the Warners literally go to every record store and buy the singles. <laughs> And then we just it's even it's even more complicated than that okay um, and he really helped um it's a long story and i'll probably get lawsuits from it so <laughs> I, I don't want to get into it too no deeply. no and we don't right. want that either we, we just asked alice about well, it and he knew we nothing about it we, we were actually on straight records at the time of 18, we were on board. Hold, hold on one second. There's a phone call oh, coming in. Yeah. Sorry about I think it's her. It's, I, think I think that's my, yeah. Oh, okay. We were on, we were on straight records. Right. Which we were on Warner Brothers records. Right. Straight records was owned by Frank Zappa. Right. Oh, wow. And this was our third album. This was, this was after our second album. We wanted to get off straight records. We had an opportunity to get off. We thought we were off straight records. We recorded that Love It to Death, thinking it was a Warner Brothers record. It came out on a straight label. That started a whole lawsuit. Oh, okay. Straight did not want to hit single any way, shape, or form. So they would not print records. So Rosalie couldn't sell records because there weren't any records. Oh, I see. So David told me what the problem was. I went to Warner Brothers, Mo Austin, and by threatening lawsuits, got him to actually put records in the stores on a Warner Brothers label. Took him about six days, seven days to get product in, some kind of rush thing. And David got him bought out. They then got sued by Strayed Records for putting out the record. Wow. So the record went back to straight to a straight records label, but Warner's put it out in places. The label changed eight or ten times on that album, um, depending on who filed the next branch of the lawsuit. So, so it was it was very complicated. Sounds it. Yeah. So not only do you have a struggle just trying to get a song on the radio, it's a struggle just having it as a single in a song. I mean that that is just amazing how you got through all. It that. was Frank Zappa. But you know the other thing I couldn't get I couldn't get the money to finish the album. We now had we had now had a top ten record. I couldn't get the money to finish the album. <laughs> and then the other, I'm sorry, yeah. go ahead. Because they didn't want, straight didn't want to sell records. The only way they would have to pay back their advance was if records sold. No, they got a very big advance for the album from Warner's. Right. Let's say they got. I think they got two hundred thousand or two hundred fifty thousand. We got nothing. But for every record we sold, we got a dollar and a quarter. Okay. It came out of their 200,000, not Warner's. Oh, okay. So it, they didn't want any records sold. The other acts on Stray Records were Wild Man Fisher, the GTOs. If you know these acts, GT, Wild Man Fisher played a cardboard guitar. <laughs> um, the GTOs 
don't do anything. Right? <laughs> they don't sing, they don't play, they don't do anything. Where the girls are very good together outrageously. So anyway, it was yeah. it was complicated. But Urso really came through and Rosalie. And from that point on, the first single of every time we put out a record up until probably her son graduated high school, we would Alice would get a limousine, drive to Tim's high school or public school, pick him up. <laughs> And drive to Rosalie and deliver the record with Tim. Wow. And Murray Nagel told us the story because at one point, I guess Murray followed David Urso is what happened in Detroit. So Murray Nagel followed Urso. And so he remembers literally going to Rosalie Trombley's son's high school with yeah. Alice in the limo. Oh, yeah. And, and, the kids, and the kids went crazy, you know, because it's a limo. <laughs> And the interesting thing about this 30% Canadian content was that, I mean, that kind of helped launch Gordon Lightfoot's career, um, Neil Young, Joni yeah. Mitchell, yeah. Um, uh, Guess Who, uh, because it was, she, you know, the Canadian stations had to play 30%. And Murray. I started to say, when Anne did Murray. Anne Murray come into the picture? Because that's, that's the big Canadian too, sure. Yeah. Oh yeah, Ed Murray was a a, really, a big part of, of that Canadian content. Right. So I'm kind of curious. I mean, we've heard about all the great things that you have done that went over amazing, but I know there's got to be at least one or two things that you thought were genius that didn't turn out as good <laughs> as you'd like to. Is there any of those yeah, you'd oh, like yeah. to share? <laughs> there's always a few of those. You know, when you're swinging when you're swinging for the fences, you're gonna miss a couple of times. I think one of the really funny ones that. that uh, actually ended up okay but we just know because we got lucky was um one of the i would say the uh once we had some power we were able to pull off stunts that were much more sophisticated much more targeted than the chicken you know. so <laughs> I, I think that, i think the thing that i think was most effective was the billboard in london we we broke down a billboard of alice naked at Piccadilly during during morning rush hour, um, and it it hit a, it blocked up traffic for seven miles. It got British Parliament to two bills were up to ban Alice Cooper from coming to England. <laughs> so it, it was probably our most effective thing that right. we ever did. Right. Uh, it got um, front pages everywhere, and it was the perfect. You know, he was naked with a snake around his penis. <laughs> He's named Alice Cooper. It's like, you know, this was the perfect, and it was a morning traffic show broadcasting it out. BBC morning show was the biggest show. It was like the Ed Sullivan show. Got it. England. And basically the show was traffic reports and farm reports. So I knew I had it. They had helicopters in the air. I was, you know, so anyway, um, next time we're going to play, how do I top this? <laughs> what what can I do in this market that's more outrageous than getting Parliament to tell me he can't come into the country? <laughs> and I tripped across this. I, so I was asking everybody. For, and one guy said, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, he said, you know, those car dealerships where they put balloons up of like a truck or a car or right. a picture of a guy mm -hmm. he said i remember one of those balloons breaking loose <laughs> right near the the clot the the the, uh, the big, big ben. ben big ben yeah and because it was in the line of the airport and airplanes the raf came and shot it down wow 
Wow. That's brilliant. <laughs> Let's do How it. How cool is that? That's so cool. I always wanted to do a balloon for the uh, Macy's Day Parade with Alice. With a big <laughs> like accentuate the nose. And put yeah, the eye that'd be so great. Well, so I went to Disney and contracted a huge balloon of Alice, um, which we did get in the Disney Parade, the Macy's Parade. Um, but then we brought it to England and I hired a barge to go up the Thames River. And when the barge got to Big Ben to blow up the balloon, and then I was going to call 911 in the airport and FAA and everyone and tell them about this thing up in the, and pray that planes came to shoot it down. Right. So I took a suite, the old Charlie Chaplin suite at the Savoy Hotel. Um, there was a great guy at Warner's in Derek Taylor, who let me do anything I wanted to do. So we took this beautiful suite. We stocked it with champagne and caviar, really upscale invited uh, four Fleet Street photographers, and then about 30 press, significant press, um, to watch an Alice Cooper event. We didn't tell them what. So the way I made my brain, they're watching out the glass window, the barge comes, this thing gets blown up. Holy shit, it's Alice Cooper's head. Holy <laughs> fuck. Goes up in the air, it's next to Big Ben, and then next thing is the RAF shoots Shooting it down. down. <laughs> How much better can you fucking get? This is as good as you can get. And uh, so now the barge comes up the river. We're all drinking champagne. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Everybody says. And um, I said, wait, it's, it's, I got a feeling something really cool is going to happen. And all of a sudden the balloon starts blowing up and you can feel the excitement in the room. And now the nose is gigantic. <laughs> balloons you know, oh my god that's alice in a balloon wow and now it's sort of just goes up maybe one foot <laughs> tips over and the nose goes into the thames river oh my god <laughs> i got like you know i got a twenty-five thousand dollar party going on to watch this thing get shot down <laughs> and it rolled into the river but we ended up getting such great press on the fact that it didn't work. <laughs> nose, I think they called it the largest nose something. Some, I don't remember the story, but I would say that's that was the biggest fiasco I can remember. Well, I, I have to ask about the cannon. The cannon that you ended up yeah, selling to the roller. But nobody, nobody knew. So, yeah, let's talk about the cannon because you ended up selling it to the Rolling Stones of all people. Yeah, Alex, Alex thinks we sold it to the Rolling Stones. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, the cannon was, um, you know, we, I was always looking for stuff that was Alice Cooper. Um, I love that. A theatrical twist, a something, a some, something that would get pressed, something that would, you know. So we announced our first stadium show, Three Rivers Stadium, Three Rivers in Pittsburgh. And stadium shows were very rare in those days. Uh, Beatles did them. I don't know if anyone, I don't actually remember anyone else doing a stadium show. And um, I think it was 73, 72, 73 when Alice was as big as you could get. Um, and it was Humble Pie on second. I'm trying, what would Alice Cooper do in a stadium? What would Alice Cooper do in a stadium that's different than the Rolling Stones or someone else? Like, wow. What about that old clown gag where you get shot across the stadium in a cannon? <laughs> Fuck, let's do that. So I'll go to Warner Brothers 
And there was a guy who had built our guillotine and built our gallows for us, an old prop guy at Warner's. Well, wait, 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 before you do, so you were smart enough to hook into the Warner Studios for all these props. That's yeah. just, brill yeah. that's brilliant because they're all right there. They're all right there. And we, and they had a vested interest. That's um, just brilliant, brilliant move. And I could, and I could use, what I did is I got the record company to put it down as an advance so we didn't have to pay for it. It just came out of royalties because <laughs> they could cross bookkeep. Oh, um, so right. great. And so, you get um, really good stuff. You know, you get this good, authentic yeah. props, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So great. So, and nobody was doing it, so this was a new game. So um, so I go to the guy, and the guy's one of those, like a maitre d' with half glasses that doesn't look at you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I've been through two projects with him, so I have real confidence in him. He really delivered. And uh, I said, listen, I got a, another crazy idea. Watch that. And I said, Alice Stadium shoot him across a cannon. And he doesn't even, not, not even a look up, he doesn't even look at me and he says, what period cannon? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? He said, World War One, World War Two, and, uh, and I, you know, I just want to work. So he goes to a drawer and he opens the drawer and he pulls out these blueprints oh. and puts them on the table. Oh my God. So I, got, I got a really good uh, revolutionary war cannon. Um, we're going to work great, easy to troop, uh, great. So the gag is, you know, you, it has a big fuse. Whoever is going to get shot out of the cannon crawls through in the barrel into a trap door, right? Where there's a dummy replica gets out the trap door, gets in some kind of transportation to get around to where it's going to come to. And um, you shoot the dummy out, and better boom. There it is. <laughs> so um, we get the cannon made. It's four, 39 feet long. Oh just my God. 40 feet <laughs> Weighs, I think, four tons. Wow. And um, we had learned by that time to do break-in shows. So we did, I think, three shows, one in Flint, one in Saginaw, one in somewhere else. And the first night, Alice gets in, and he the band, we, we turn the lights out. The band has torches. The drummer's got like a tin drum. They walk over to it. They put him in it. They go up to the fuse. They light the fuse. The PA's now got the sound of, you know, the flames going down. Explosion out of the PA. The dummy comes out maybe six inches. <laughs> Drops on the stage, and Alice is on the other side of the building with a spotlight on him. <laughs> but no one's even looking there because the dummy only went six inches. Oh my God, that's hilarious. <laughs> he comes back and he says, I guess that didn't work. And I said, No, no, it was probably the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and, and, I, and I, as a rookie, had made the horrible mistake of putting on the ads in Pittsburgh, see Alice get shot out of a cannon. Oh, no. So, you know, the clock is ticking. And I said, go to sleep, I'll figure something out. So um, we, I couldn't, there was no way I could figure out how to shoot him out of the cannon, but I figured, what else can I do with this prop that'll at least work? So in the hotel, there were these fire extinguishers that if you turn them upside down, you got white foam. So I turned it into a giant penis. 
And I said, I, when he got in the afternoon, I said, listen, you get on it and just masturbate this motherfucker. <laughs> just, we're going to shoot cum out of its thing, cover the first 50, 60 rows of cum. <laughs> fantastic. Everybody, will, parents will hate it. Fans it will love it. So he gets on, he just makes love to this can and he works it so hard. And like three drips come out. <laughs> it's worse than the night before. That can is cursed. So, so the end of the story is he shows up the next day. I say, you might want to bring some overnight clothes just in case you end up in the hospital tonight. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I I just got a feeling something may go wrong tonight, so be prepared. And he said, are you kidding? I said, no, I'm going to make, just just go with me. Um, so he gets in the cannon. He goes down to the bottom. We put a lot of smoke out, big noise. I had hired an ambulance. I have a couple of guys with a bed run out onto the stage, take, take the dummy. They don't know it's a dummy. Put it in the bed. Race off with the sirens. We had one reporter from Pittsburgh there who was doing a story on the show coming up. So we had him film Alice getting the, the bed rushing off, the thing blowing up. We put out a press release that night that uh, unfortunately Alice was in it, but we think he's okay, but it blew up with the minute. <laughs> and um, we dressed up one of the roadies as a doctor. And on the side of the hospital, which Alice never went into, we did a press conference with our roadie as the doctor <laughs> for that one TV station from Pittsburgh that showed up. Oh my <laughs> so he God. They had some burns. He had some problems. A few of the other guys got injured, but they will do their show. Right. And um, the bass player did the show from a wheelchair. With plasma. <laughs> plasma in the wheelchair. We had doctors and nurses constantly coming out to check Alice. <laughs> Um, and That's the brilliant. show went on and people said, this is so great. He comes and plays even after he got blown up. <laughs> they love it. <laughs> Shep, the things, the way your brain works. Oh my gosh. I love it. Well, uh, <clears throat> you know, one person that I thought would have been a perfect match for you, because as a kid growing up, I mean, it was Evil Knievel for me. I mean, I, Evil Knievel was like, yeah, my, was it was like, you know, I thought he was amazing. I, my dad was crazy. actually paid for me to go see him jump the Snake River Canyon from an auditorium wow. in Raleigh, North Carolina, when there was no such thing as pay-per-view. It was closed-circuit television or something. Oh, yeah, I remember. I was, he was the first. I was a huge fan. So, I mean, did you ever meet the guy, or was there ever? Met, yeah. No, you just looks like it would be a perfect marriage for you. I met his kid. Robbie? Yeah, who sort of carried on the tradition for a yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. but here's the people that, that Shep does meet. He go, he marries, and he goes to this island where he's only supposed to be the only guest. And <laughs> his wife, his brand-new bride, has something wrong with his her computer. He requests some help, and there's a knock at a door. And who is it? <laughs> Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. So what are the what <laughs> are the, the odds? <laughs> I mean, that's oh what I'm saying. God. Your life is filled with so yeah, much no, synchronicity. I mean, it's just like, are you kidding me? That is yeah, beautiful. That's crazy. that's crazy. How much fun was and, he though? I mean, he's deep. Stephen Jobs is very deep. But I mean, did you? Oh, he was great. I, I actually, I had met him years before um, when they first started Apple. One of the ways they tried to promote it was they were giving out to third world 
and underprivileged communities computers for their schools. Mm. Um, and I was in partnership with Island Records at the time, Island Films, um, who were out of Jamaica. Yeah, Mr. Blackwell. So they wanted to give Jamaica computers. So we set up a meet, uh, a guy named Johnny Pagazzi, um, and Chris Blackwell set up this meeting with Jobs and Walensky and the government, and I attended one of those meetings. So I had met him briefly. I don't know if you remember. But what was interesting, he's a raw food guy, and my wife was a raw food chef. So we ended up, uh, we made him dinner the first night. And then the second day he came to me on the beach and he said, listen, I love the meal, it was great. He said, but I don't really like my food being manipulated. Um, I like that as it grows, which I thought was really interesting because she's raw food, so she doesn't do anything. Right. But, she, you know, but she cuts the carrot and cuts the beet and, um, and he didn't want anything even touched. Wow. Really? That's I respect that that was his... That was where he got to in the latter part of his life. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. He was, he was really, could not have been nicer to us. And his wife was remarkable. Um, We didn't see much of him. We had, I think, two or three meals with him. Yeah. Yeah. There was, there's another question I wanted to ask you. It goes back to the very beginning of you meeting Jim Morrison and um, Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix. And, I had heard this story, but no one's ever kind of confirmed it, that um, Alice offered Jimi Hendrix a place to stay, either his basement or his house or a room when uh, Jimi was still working on his debut album. Is that, is there? That I, that I don't know. I don't, when I met Alice, he was staying in the Chambers Brothers' house. Time, uh, time, time will come again. Yeah, they were, <laughs> that's, they, they were very instrumental in, in my being here today. I mean, the Chambers Brothers? Yeah, because they, 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 they're the ones who said, you know, they, uh, if you're Jewish, you should be a manager. <laughs> they then, I said, who should I manage? They, they put me together with Alice. Wow. The name of my company is Alive Entertainment. And the reason it's Alive Entertainment is because um, they told me I needed to get business cards. And I didn't even have a name for the business. I love the peace sign being the V. That's, that's brilliant. That's what it was. The Chambers Brothers used to do, the time has come today, and they'd flash the peace sign. And Willie Chambers was an artist. So Lester said to Willie, what about if they find a word with the V, would you draw the fingers for the V for his card? That's brilliant. So <laughs> we went to the front desk of the Landmark Hotel. We got a dictionary. We started at the A's. And when we got to Alive, I said, wow, that's a great name for, you know, music thing. And, that, and then he drew me up a card. My first card is A-L-I-V, a hand-drawn E. That's, that's so awesome. great. See, that's I always great. thought Ringo was responsible for the peace sign. Chef <laughs> had peace and love way before then. So uh, the, the question that we've talked to Alice about and others have, you know, talked about several times, it was mentioned in the, the movie, is just the handshake agreement that you've had with Alice uh, – what, almost 50 years now, uh, no contract. I mean, was that your idea, his idea, mutual conversation? even knew that there were contracts. Yeah, yeah. You just said this yeah. is it. There's I, a, it, I mean, I that is the ultimate trust right there. Yeah, I don't think it crossed his mind or my mind. Wow. That you should do a contract or what a contract was or where we'd even get a contract. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you're living in a world where you've got recording contracts, publishing contracts, contracts for the concert venues. So 
you know, yeah, and I just it, thought about it for us. We were just in it together. Yeah. Never had contracts with any guys in the band. Wow. And I still deal with, you know, I spoke to Michael two days ago. I, I speak, I, we, you know, I still collect the money and distribute it for him. So, you know, I, I, it was such an early time in the business uh, that it was, it, and it, the economics was so small. Right. You know, now the economics are so staggering right from the first day that, that you probably need to, to make, to define things. But, you know, Alice, when he headlined Madison Square Garden, a sellout, the gross of a sellout was $30,000, not what wow. we got. Wow, a Madison cow. Square Garden. It was a 250 ticket, dollar and a quarter. Oh, well, yeah, I guess you're right. Wow. <laughs> 15,000 seats, you know, that's, that's what the rider is for Jay-Z. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. one dressing room. <laughs> wow. Gross now I'll show it. So... It was such a different thing. Even if you were the headliner, you, you still were hustling for money. Right. I don't remember Janice, Jimmy, G Morris, and any member having a car. Wow. I don't think any of them could really afford cars. Um, it was a different, such a different time and world and scale of economy. You know? Um, well, and, and what's interesting about your story and your history with Alice is that you know, he really started at that era when classic rock really was the birth of classic rock. And then coming from Detroit, which has got Motown and MC5 and Iggy and all of that going on was pretty interesting. Alice was our first, you know, rock star guest on our show. And we had gone to see him. It was two years ago. It was 2019 in Austin. And I went to the show somewhat kind of skeptical about what kind of show it was going to be. And I came away so excited about getting back into all the Alice Cooper catalog because his band is amazing. Yeah. He's great. The show's great. I mean, everything you want in a rock show was there. And when I was with him backstage and I showed him a picture of me and him with Bernie Tompin, and then Richard Woolad, who was the Warner partner, because he was Warner Brothers Detroit and I was Secondaries Michigan. And we kind of laughed and he looked up at me and he says, you've painted your hair because <laughs> it's <now> all silver. <laughs> but I mean, you know, and then we had Chris Franz on, drummer of the Talking Heads, and, and Alice had told us how, because uh, there was another picture with him and Bernie and the Talking Heads, because they came to see the Talking Heads play Detroit. And uh, I guess uh, David Byrne went up to Alice and said, we wrote Psycho Killer about you. And we just <laughs> thought that was like amazing because it's, that was their very first song Talking Heads had ever wrote together as a band. So we got to verify all that because we've had them on. We've had John Anderson of Yes on. We've had some really fun people on our show. That, that has been the most fun thing about doing this uh, Promotion Man radio show and podcast is because you've heard all the lead you know urban legends through your entire life and then we finally get the people on the show that can say that's nah, bullshit or that actually really happened yeah. you know i love it so it's great like, having you like paul fishkin he's got <laughs> bearsville Rex records and then he goes on to have modern records so he's telling us he's he's roommates with todd rundgren and one day todd comes home with a song he goes hey man i want to i want you to listen to the song it's called we want to get you a woman and it's written about Paul Fishkin. Yeah. He's Leroy Boy. <laughs> and we're like, what? <laughs> you know, just these really great stories that are coming out of this podcast from 
people like you and all, all these others that are sharing these stories that it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Anna and Alice had the same name, Ben, Naz. Is that right? Yeah, we gave it up when we ran into him. Is that, that right? Was, that was out. That was the name of the band before. That's correct. And he, and Paul said that Todd felt like the band was a failure, so he was going to become an engineer producer for Bearsville. Right. And um, then he wrote, we're going to get you a woman, and then I saw the light, and here comes all his hits. And now he's going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. Oh, he's tied in? Yeah, I think he's going in this year. Yeah, he's going oh, in yeah, this year. Yeah, finally. It's, he's been overlooked several times. Yeah, well, he was there, due, man. Yeah. And was, it would yeah. be so amazing to see Rosalie Trombley go into. I mean, that would she, be fantastic. she so deserves it. it would I be, think we're looking at the person that needs to be in there. And you need to be in I it mean, as well. I mean, come on. The Supermensch. Yeah. yeah I well, I just started reading your book today. Of course, I've seen the movie, but I wanted to read the uh, the audio bi biography myself. So I just started that today before the interview, and I'm uh, I, I'm already can't hardly put it down. It's great. Yeah. So I just, I just had the honor of um, being the voice of Anthony Bourdain on his new book. Oh, is oh, that right? Excellent. Yeah, which came out posthumously. It's a travel log oh. by Anthony Bourdain. I'll check that out. That's yeah, great. So that was really a that was really something to do. Nice. Well, thank you so much for being a part of this yes, Promotion sure. Man uh, podcast show. And um, and we're both excited to see Alice when he comes back here. It's it's a small suburb outside of Austin called Cedar Park. Right. Um, right. But we're looking forward to, to being with him and seeing the show again. And thank you so much for being a part of this episode. Yeah. Aloha, guys. Okay. Aloha. See you later. Promotion Man, the true backstories of the most iconic bands in the world, told by Fred Myers and interviewed by me, L.A. Lloyd. Get involved and interact on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find the links at promotion-man.com. That's promotion-man.com. Download the weekly Promotion Man podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. We appreciate you subscribing and spreading the word, and thanks for listening.